0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Well, good evening, and welcome to another edition of Fighting Words presents the t- Sports Tonight. Uh, tonight we start the program with a very sad note. A member of our staff has been with us for over 20 years, um, passed away last Sunday at 8 a.m. Uh, at his home uh, up in uh, St. Leo's. Tom G- Thomas J. Gilbert. Tommy was a well-known uh, radio person here in and- uh, in the Tampa Bay area, he was born to uh, Thomas and Mary uh, Gilbert. He was born in, in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. He was raised in the suburban Philadelphia area of Springfield Township. He went to Springfield Township High School, Brandywine College, where he majored in uh, time and space and golf, and uh, then he um, came down to the uh, the Tampa Bay area. Uh, when his dad retired. Um, Thomas uh, has had some many, many ups and downs in his career. But most of all, he, he cherished each and every person that he met. Uh, he was truly a, a person that uh, Will Rogers would have loved to have met uh, because he never never met a person that wasn't a friend. Um, one of the things that uh, struck us uh, last night, uh, they did a... a uh, Tommy was a, a member of the staff of the Tampa Bay Lightning, and this, they did a uh, staff memorial last night. And Vinny LeCavier was most uh, appreciative of, of his time spent with Tommy, and told about a story about uh, just before a major game when everybody was upset. He threw everybody out of the out of the uh, locker room except Tommy and the team members. And Tommy uh, gave him a, a rousing uh, speech about how each, each one of them was a star, and each one of them was going to rise above everything. Each one of them was going to play their hearts out that night. And they did. They won, and then they won the cup. Um, Tom will be missed. Uh, he's, uh has no living relatives in the, in the Florida area and is just uh, uh, succeeded by his uh, cousin Kathy from Voorhees, uh, New Jersey. So, with that sad note uh, we we'll get started here um, Roy, I guess you had uh, you spent most time with uh, Tom than any of the staff. Uh, you want want some some memories
0: yeah uh very obviously very sad i mean, very unexpected, really, despite the fact that tommy uh, has struggled with some health issues over the past couple of years. Uh, this this really came as a surprise to everybody. I mean, he announced uh, just a few weeks back that uh, I maybe mean, it was a couple months ago now uh, that he was cancer free after a, a battle with cancer. Um, uh, but uh, so it was a very surprising uh, and, and unexpected uh, loss. And you know, I, I went, to, I attended the um, the celebration of life for Tommy last night that the Tampa Bay Lightning held, and uh, you know, congratulations and kudos. To the Lightning for for doing that, uh, Brian Breesman, their public relations director, and Stephen Griggs uh, really kind of headed that up, and it was well attended. Um, you know, a lot of people that uh, worked alongside Tommy, uh, who was uh, I don't know, I guess uh, a bit of a of an everything man. Uh, he became with the Lightning. You're you're right. I mean, his primary job and what I've always known him for when I first met Tommy thirty uh, some years ago. Well, it was back in '90 early nineties when uh, we're both covering the lightning. And uh, I was the beat writer for the Tampa Tribune and Tommy was there getting radio sound for networks throughout the uh, country and uh, in Canada. And that was, uh, that was his job was to get uh, network radio sound. And he, you know, one of the things that was talked about, well, many things were the theme of the The theme was this, uh, as you said, uh, Tommy Metter never met a person he didn't love and that uh, probably didn't end up loving him. Um, He was as loyal and dedicated uh, a person to everyone that he met and as kind and gentle a soul as anyone has ever known. Tommy always had a smile on his face, uh, even through the most most difficult times, uh, and we've all been through them with him. Uh, He always Mm -hmm. had a smile on his face. He always had something positive to say. Uh, and that was really the theme uh, of all the stories that were relayed uh, yesterday from, uh, from uh, as you said, players like uh, Vinny kula and Marty St. Louis to uh, Rick Peckham and Bobby the Chief Taylor and, you know, right on down to, you know, to ticket uh, salespeople that he worked alongside. And, um, uh, and uh, he's going to be forever missed because, again, he was so positive. Um, you know, we, we were joking about, you know, this is a guy who once told uh, – a very little poorly known uh, Lightning player named Corey Sarich, uh, that he, he's going to get a hat trick uh, tonight. Corey Sarich at the time had never scored an NHL goal, so the, the likelihood of giving, him getting a hat <laughs> trick were, were, you know, next to none. But but that was Tommy. And it's why, you know, one thing that uh, went on after he had this uh, this speech to the team uh, at a critical moment in the season when they won their first Stanley Cup, uh, one of the things that was uh, not mentioned uh, was that that started a trend where Tommy addressed the team for uh, a good six, eight straight games until a winning streak <laughs> ended. Uh, and by the time that winning streak ended, uh, the Lightning, Lightning were in uh, you know secure position of uh, first place and, uh, mm-hmm. ready to you know have home ice advantage throughout the playoffs and uh so you were talking about a guy who was always very positive i mean we felt it here in our show guys mm-hmm. um and and he was as dedicated to the lightning as anyone has ever been um i dare dare i say almost as much as Phil Esposito who founded the team um and uh because and we again we thought here i mean you know it, the the wednesday before the super Bowl tommy would rather talk about the lightning and and tried to uh mm-hmm. in the middle of the world series tommy wanted to talk about the lightning and and did or tried to um you know it didn't matter what the really top number not top uh, sports story was that week uh when when our show comes on guys tommy wanted to talk about the lightning and mm-hmm. uh and we often did and uh and he was always very positive
2: uh,
0: i'll never forget when it was very troubling for anyone in the lightning family after they lost the uh, the playoffs in the playoffs a couple of years back uh to columbus swept out of the out of the playoffs i'll never forget the following week uh you know tommy was a little bit hesitant to talk about the lightning but he was still very positive saying you know they'll grow from this and i said you know i remember being very rather frank with him and saying tommy they have to grow this is you know arguably one of the most disappointing uh, results of uh, any Tampa Bay sports franchise in 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 the, in the you know community's history and Tommy took that hard because he was so dedicated to that uh, to that team and to the people that uh, he worked with there uh, he, as i said he became a kind of a do everything man he 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 did he sold tickets primarily to groups um, he, uh, he 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 gathered uh, sound for their podcasts and sound for their uh, for their website, things like that. And um, he was, uh, he kind of worked his way into the organization in a way. And, and to be honest, uh, some of the people at the top level of the organization still aren't sure how, but uh, he was always there. Mm-hmm. And um, as we all know, Tommy could fall out of bed and shoot 72 on any golf course in the, in the country. <laughs> um, he was, he was, I, I often call referred to Tommy as a golf savant. Um, and if you ever played <laughs> golf with him, he was it was amazing. I mean, he played golf like a like a bull in a china shop. You know, he just he got up yep. there. He, he you know he he walked up to the tee, didn't spend any time addressing the ball or preparing his swing or anything like that, like most people do. He just got up there, swung, and it went straight down the down the fairway, three hundred yards. Picked up the next club, hit it one hundred and fifty yards right onto the green, two putted for a par, if, if not a one putt for a birdie, and that was Tommy. Uh, A golf Mm -hmm. savant and, again, the the gentlest soul and the kindest person you would ever meet. And we all miss him and we all loved him dearly. And uh, the the degree to which he touched so many people was evident last night at the celebration for life for Tommy. And he is – I miss him already. And uh, Mm -hmm. I feel bad that in the last ten years I was never able to go out and play as much golf with him as he wanted to because uh, you know he had a lot more free time than some of us, and uh, and he filled that time as often as he could uh, playing golf. And um, uh, I wish I'd have spent more time with him. And uh, you know, one one person said, uh, and, and I'll wrap up the at least this part of it with this. Uh, one of the things that was said last night. One thing Tommy always did, and it's true, he always asked about your family, even if he didn't know who your family who, who your family members were. He asked, you know, how's your wife? How, how's, how's your family? How's your family? Always asking. And um, somebody said last night, you know, go home tonight, and, and if you take anything from, from Tommy Gilbert, always ask somebody that you care about. A- ask about their family. And uh, and because that's who Tommy was. I'm choking up a little bit, guys, but it's I understand. That's who Tommy was. Yeah. That's who Tommy was.
2: Well, I I go back a little bit further than Roy. Uh, I was working obviously in Philadelphia when Tommy uh, first really became acquainted and before he even knew that there was going to be a Lightning team, Uh, he was so dedicated to the Flyers. Uh, He followed every Flyer game right up through the Stanley Cup. Uh, As Bobby Taylor uh, will tell you time and time again uh, how dedicated he was to the Philadelphia Flyers and the Philadelphia sports scene. He lived in Springfield, Delaware County. Very, very happy that uh, he lived very, very close to Mike Socia, who became a great catcher with the Dodgers and then on to be a manager with the California Angels. Uh, and they were lifelong friends, and he never let you forget that, that he grew up with, with Mike Socia. But uh, he loved hockey. Uh, he got so involved with hockey with the Philadelphia Flyers. He knew every player. He knew every player's family. As Roy said, uh, one of the major things with him was, uh, how are the kids? How's your wife? How's everything going? Uh, the other thing he, uh, the only thing he could say that was negative about Tommy is that no matter how bad the team was, there could have been the Baltimore Orioles last year, and you say, if Tommy was rooting for them, how are they gonna do? Oh, they're gonna win the pennant this year. <laughs> that was the way that was the way it was in the National Hockey League. Like if uh, you know the Lightning were going through tough times, Tommy would say, oh, it's gonna be much better. And nobody was happier when they won their first Stanley Cup and uh, talked about, from a coaching standpoint, from a playing standpoint, uh, how much he was involved with that first Stanley Cup championship, and then carried that right through till, uh the, mm-hmm. the series that Roy was talking about with Columbus, and then to last year when they won the Stanley Cup again. So uh, you could never say a bad thing about Tommy. Uh, his golf was superb. Uh, as everybody has said, he, he loved the game, probably loved the game more than anything else. But secondly, uh, it was the National Hockey League. He moved to Cleveland. He covered the the Cleveland Cavaliers. He covered uh, the Cleveland Browns when they made the transition from out of Cleveland. And, and, uh, and uh, of course, the new club came in. They went down and became the Ravens down in Baltimore. Uh, he was very, very involved uh, in all the sports activities in Cleveland, all the sports activities in Philly. Everybody knew Tommy. And then, of course, when I got down here to Florida and Sarasota, uh, the reason I'm here on this show and the reason I've been here so long, he was doing a show in Bradenton. And he called me up and said, "Don, would you come on one night with us? And Frank, at that time, with his son, was working the same station, but at a different time. He, either, I can't remember, Frank will tell you whether it was just before or just after Tommy finished. And uh, then we got into the podcast and – We've all been together uh, for so many years now doing this show. It's been a lot of fun, and as Roy said, uh, nobody's going to be missed in the sports scene uh, more than Tommy Gilbert. Uh, all we can do is say he was a great, great guy, a wonderful guy. And, and uh, Roy, I think you really hit it right on the head. And uh, I, I, Frank, uh, I know you uh, started the show off talking about the same thing, and Roger Hendler was with us all the way. He was uh, – in Hamilton Township, New Jersey, he worked at Princeton, he worked at Philly. Uh, he knew Tommy in the early days, as I did. And, uh, Roger, I know you got a thought or two that you like to jump out here.
3: Well, well, I sure do. And the first time I ever met him uh, was when you, you fellows were doing the show in Brayton. And uh, I was down uh, to cover the Super Bowl, and uh, that's when I you. you introduced me to uh, uh, Tommy, Don. And, of course, you know, you and I had gone back. But he also, I will say this, he also got to see the Eagles win a Super Bowl. And I know that 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 meant a lot to him, Uh, you know, because he'd have that Eagles uh, entourage on Sundays at the uh, restaurant. But, uh, uh, you know, everything that the three of you have said, uh, a very kind man, kind heart. Uh, I never saw him play golf. However, I knew his golf coach at Springfield High School. And uh, his wife, uh, Betty Cannon, his name was Joe Cannon, and his wife, uh, Betty, was the controller at Temple when I was a student, and I worked for her at registration. So you know how things, the, the world evolves and then, you know, here to, to meet Tommy many years ago and find out that he had played for Joe Cannon, who I've known, you know, for 60 years, uh, you know, it's, it's a small world. But uh, I think the Lightning are, like Roy, you said, the Lightning are to be congratulated for what they did. Uh, you know, last night I've seen, uh, you know, highlights, the uh, video. And, of course, there's going to be another uh, Zoom one that his best friend, uh um, yeah is going to uh, uh, coordinate Nick Chioffrey, the uh, retired CEO of uh, Bradford White Water heaters. and uh, what happened is that when I found out about this, I did not I had Nick's business number, but of course he's retired. but I did know Carl I had met Carl Pinto and I know tommy men, mentioned Carl Pinto's name a couple of times when he'd be visiting in Philadelphia because he'd be over at Bradford White and Ambler. So I got in touch with and left a message with the secretary and then to uh, Carl. The next thing I know, I'm getting a call from Nick. And of course, uh, we all know uh, the way the the bond that was there between Nick Giuffre and and Tom Gilbert. I mean, they were like brothers. So uh, that more to come. uh, But God rest his soul. Uh, And, you know, the other thing is, People don't realize, and when you mention this, Roy, what he was termed because I've done it too, uh, a stringer, and and in radio, and people don't know how many live reports uh, are ge- or r- reports on um, you know radio network, et cetera, are generated by stringers. Because, you know, networks, stations, they don't have the uh, wherewithal financially to be – especially today. But uh, to employ – and I know a good friend of uh, Don and myself, who passed away a couple years ago, uh, did this in Philadelphia, Henry Clay. So – and, uh, you know, I guess they had met each other, Tommy and and Henry, uh, over the years. But – Anyway, he was he was a terrific guy, a wonderful person, uh, and he was a very. He did not have a family, uh, children, but he really cared about everyone's family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, guys, I, I, just, I just want to add. You know, we we, we talked about how
0: how kind and gentle he is, and people hear that and. And, and they probably. I, I, I'm telling you right now, if you don't, if you didn't know Tommy, you cannot truly comprehend how kind-hearted and and, and how gentle a soul he truly was. This is a guy who, who I, I just I've never met anyone like him. And this is a guy who, John Tortorella, who who if anybody's you know follows the NHL in any way, or you don't even have to really to know that he's he's an abrasive guy. John Tortorella is quick to. Loses temper and snap at you. And he did that once with Tommy. Tommy uh, asked him a question in a press conference, and, and John Tortorella, you know, snapped at him. And, and you know, basically, uh, again, Tommy doing his job, getting the sound, uh, you know, basically asking a question about an upcoming game against the Washington Capitals uh, after a loss, uh, you know, uh, to the Rangers was the situation. And, um, you know, he needed to get that sound for uh, stations around the country that, uh, or certainly the stations in Washington uh, that were going to be playing, uh, you know, previews of the game and things like that. And so Tommy's just doing his job. And, and John Tortorella, unhappy with the loss for the Lightning, snapped at Tommy and, you know, basically said, Tommy, what, what the heck are you asking me now? You know what I mean? In a lot, a lot worse way than that, guys. And... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Within 15 minutes after that press conference, uh, John it ended, you know, was some of John Tortorella's often, do with him walking off the podium suddenly. Uh, he called in his PR guy and said, you need to bring Tommy in here because I need to apologize because nobody deserves to be to be treated that way. And, and this is John Tortorella. I promise you, John Tortorello has never – he snapped at every reporter that's ever asked him a question, number one, um, and been worse to, to many. And uh, mm-hmm. I would say Tommy's probably the only person he ever apologized to, and that gives you an idea of just how gentle and kind a of soul he was. That, you know, that that's he he, you, you, he's, he was a person that you you just could not be mean to, because there was nothing, right. there was not a mean bone or, or cell in his body. There wasn't a mean gene in his body. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and 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 I'll I'll finish up with this, guys. Um, at least on Tommy, at least for now. The good news is this, and this was, uh, he he got his Stanley Cup ring, his Lightning Stanley Cup ring, uh, just three or four days before he passed uh, last Sunday. And he was so excited and so happy. And he, several people were telling the story about how, you know, he saw a couple of people on his way out of the, excuse me, out of the building the night that he got the ring last week, a couple of weeks ago. And um, one person that he, that he saw, it was a coworker in the, uh, ticket department with the lightning. He, he stopped him and said, Hey, I got to show you this. I got to show you my ring. I got to show you my ring. And he, and he opened up the, the box and showed him the ring. He goes, Oh, I'm so proud of the ring. It's just so proud of the ring. You know, I'm just so excited, so excited. And, uh, he goes, Hey, I got to tell you another thing. I got to tell you another thing. And, um, and the guy said, what Tommy, what? And he goes, I think I'm going to go home now. And, <laughs> and, he, and he said, yeah, well, you're, you're heading home. And, and he goes, no, no. Yeah. He says, I, I think I'm going home. And and he, and he, and he said, I just want to let you know I'm going home. And he passed away four days later, guys. And, wow, mm-hmm. wow, yeah. And, well, I, you know, we know that he missed his parents horribly but and uh, uh, terribly missed his parents. And, and when, when mm-hmm. he told that person, uh, it, it when he passed away, that person realized, Maybe Tommy had an idea that that, that you know his, his time here was up and uh, he was going to go home mm-hmm. to be with his parents finally and uh, mm-hmm. so but but you know what be happy for Tommy because he's back he's back home with his parents now mm-hmm. and
2: he's got
3: those in Stanley Cup
0: place. rings and yeah he's in a better place and he's got his Stanley Cup rings and uh, I promise you. He's uh, he's bugging Jesus right now and saying, "Hey Jesus, Jesus, you got to you got you got to take a look at this. You got to take a look at this." That's Tom. I'm telling you right
4: now. That's Tom. Well,
0: the other thing was Roy that uh, wherever
2: he was, as I said, when he was in Philadelphia, when I first uh, got acquainted with him, he was in Delaware County, and when he came into Philadelphia to uh, the vet, Roger would be there as well. And uh, he when he decided he was going to be involved in sports, he was involved in sports. I mean, he would follow the Phillies, and uh, he would follow the Lightning, and he would follow the Eagles, as uh, Roger said a minute ago. He was one that headed up at the hotel there in Tampa, uh, the out-of-Philadelphia Philadelphia Eagles game every Sunday that he would monitor over there. and uh, So no matter where he was, whether it was in Cleveland, whether it was in Tampa, whether it was in Philadelphia, he became a major intricate part of what happened in the world of sports. So all we can got yeah, to do is say, did. Tommy, we salute you for what you did. And as Roy said, you're in a better spot right now.
3: Roy, I will say this, okay? I can relate to what Tort did to Tommy because Dick Vermeil did it to me with Don Henderson and Al Meltzer sitting in front of me. <laughs> but Dick Vermeil never apologized. That I can tell <laughs> you.
2: <laughs> right.
3: Hey, you know what? As sports reporters
0: <laughs> – uh, no matter what, no matter what the medium—TV, uh, radio, uh, newspapers, w- online—now, if you haven't been, you know, yelled at, snapped at by the coach or another player at some point in your career, you haven't done your job. Because you're right. You know, we have to ask tough questions sometimes, and and that was the thing, and that was brought up as well at, at the at the uh, celebration of life yesterday for Tommy. Was that this is a guy who. As kind a of soul as he was, he had the guts to go in there and ask the tough questions when they had to be asked, and they had to be asked sometimes. And he had a tougher job than a lot of people. He wasn't necessarily just reporting on that game that night. He was, you know, he he had to get sound, as I said, for you know a game two days down the road uh, for another city that uh, needed in you know needed a comment from a player or a coach about. The fact that they're coming into my city and, and taking on my team next, you know, next right. Tuesday. So mm-hmm. he had to do that, and that's not easy, especially no, and after especially the, lost, the professional athletes. Roy, last no, but not, not
2: least for me today. is that uh, following up with what you're saying right now, uh, I laugh at uh, at most of the TV and radio talk show hosts because the thing that the thing that they do is they can criticize and criticize and criticize. Individual players, the team, the owners, because they never go in the locker room. They never talk oh, to right. any of these people. They, never you know, go to a game. They never go to a game, and it's very right. easy. Sit on the sidelines for two or three hours and do a radio show and tell you everything that's wrong with the Lightning, everything that's wrong with Cash, everything that's wrong with uh, you know the Tampa Bay uh, Buccaneers or whatever. It's easy to sit there and do it when you never have to go in the locker room and face the people you're talking about. And that's exactly why you can't put a lot of stock in, in radio. It's fun to talk about radio talk shows, but you can't put a lot of stock in what they do because they don't go in there. They don't know anything about it.
0: Don, well, you know, Don, you, the, the
3: one guy that, absolutely right, that Don, and The one Ron. guy that does that, Roy, is Howard Eskin. And Don tutored him. He worked for Don and uh, Steve Fredericks, and then he followed uh, Don at uh, WWDB. He goes to games, and whatever he says in a criticism, you can take it for for fact because because he say that again, is Frank, there. Yeah. Anyway, that's
0: what I was. Don, gonna you say. know what? That, that Back, we, we could do a whole we could do a whole half hour segment with me on that, because I'm right there with you, Don, about that. It's, it's one of the things that really bothers me the most about uh, quote-unquote talk show radio hosts and why, I mean, you're, not only do they not go to the, you know, go into the locker room and say, yeah, I'm the one that just, you know, called you, uh, you know, a, a, a whatever, whatever SOB or whatever it is, and um, not only do they not do that, but most of the time, they don't even develop any kind of a relationship of any kind with no. coaches and players that they're talking about because they never go to the practice. They never go to the you know some of them never go to the games themselves. And uh, most they, of them, they basically sit up in the press box, uh, eat the free food, and uh, you know sit there and, and watch the game for free, and uh, and then go tear the team apart uh, about it the next morning or whatever. So um, that's right.
3: It's,
0: you're right. It's, it's I, I'm not a fan of. Uh, Sports Talk hosts like that, and they're not all like that. The majority of them are, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, you know, I appreciate the guys who have the guts to uh, uh, show up the next day and, uh, and be a part of it on a regular basis and go out there to practice as often as they can. Some guys, depending on their schedule, when they're on the air and things like that, can't make every practice, and I get that. But um, you can always show up after a game and uh and go into the locker room and uh be seen so that uh, somebody's got something to say to you you can at least uh stand up to them like a man and say hey uh yeah i said it and uh this is why i said it Roger. I, I think
2: frank said that we're i don't know we up with the first half hour i, I didn't get exactly yeah, yeah, what Frank about. yeah we it. have
1: steve Kinsella ready to go
2: okay yeah steve okay. Kinsella's ready to go so uh, gentlemen, uh, we spent a lot of time the first half hour talking about uh, a great guy, Tommy Gilbert. Uh, you can't say enough good things about Tommy Gilbert, and I can't think of one bad thing to say about him. So uh, we'll wind up with that. Uh, Roy, once again, a great, great first half hour for us, and Roger as well, Frank. Uh, and and uh, we'll move on to Steve and talk a little baseball. But uh, once again, our final salute to Tommy Gilbert.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, as always, guys. And uh, Tommy, I love you, brother. We miss you. We miss you. Amen. Thanks, all right, Steve's are all ready
2: to go. We're going to change our course to baseball. And uh, boy, there's so much going on, and nobody's on top of the baseball <laughs> better than he is. So, Steve, give us a little idea of, first of all. Uh, How do you think the lockout is going to go? Do you think we're going to go to February? Do you think we're going to go to spring training? Do you think we're going to – is this going to be resolved peacefully or what?
5: Uh, If I was a betting man, I'd say it's going to go pretty long. I mean, there's three parties involved. There's well-funded teams that don't want to split their revenue too much. There's teams that need to have their revenue split. And then there's players who are looking at everything and saying, you know, it's a $10 billion-a-year industry, and about 70% of that money is logged into about 12 to 14 teams, and that money needs to be filtered back into their other teams that can spend it. It doesn't matter if you're a $10 billion-a-year industry. If a team um, pockets $200 million or $300 million from their TV contract, and it doesn't go to the players. That doesn't help the players. So you got, you got basically a triangle here. Um, I don't think the players are going to accept a, con- a deal that doesn't give funding to the teams like Pittsburgh and Tampa Bay and Cleveland and Oakland and Cincinnati and uh, some of the other markets that TV deals are tapped out as high as they're going to get. <clears throat> and uh, that's going to be the b- big sticking point. First, got to get the owners to agree about a, a revenue-sharing plan that'll uh, allow teams to spend a, you know, a fair amount on player salaries uh, that's just one of the issues that needs to be resolved so i think it's going to go pretty long but you know i can be pleasantly surprised i hope it goes as long as it takes to put a new system in place that everybody could be happy with if you're a philadelphia phillies fan there's no problem with the collective bargaining agreement as it is now you guys can have a payroll of 200 million if you're an oakland a's fan and you're looking at trading half your team because you can't afford a a bloated payroll through arbitration, you need another source of revenue, and you're not going to get it from your stadium, you're not going to get it from your TV deal. Tampa Uh, Bay, Steve,
2: Tampa Bay.
5: Well, I don't want to sit and. what I'm trying to do is not be the Tampa Bay guy that complains because I'm in Tampa Bay. I, I have to understand there are other markets out there that have the same dynamic forces working against them. Um, I'd rather speak about them. You know what I'm saying? This way it's not, you know, if anybody's listening, it's not just Steve crying about Tampa Bay. I just think the system needs to be reset. The contracts, these TV deals during this CBA and the previous CBA, they got so big in some markets that they just left the other teams in the dust and players deserve that money. You know, like for instance, guys, if you were to say, uh, a percentage of a team's revenue has to go to payroll. Let's just say it's 70% or let's say 50% of a team's revenue needs to go to payroll. Well, maybe the Rays and the Pirates and the A's are doing that right now. The Yankees payroll should double threshold. Instead, they can spend a quarter of their revenue to get to the $200 million mark. And the rest of that money just goes into funding the, the organization. So, that money needs to be split up, and the players need to be able to get to that. Before I get there, right one, one last point, and
2: that, that is this, that uh, you also have to remember, we talk about so much money that the players are getting, and, and you know, relative fact, for, for the normal person, they are getting a hell of a lot of money. But you must remember that the middle class has gone from, 11 or $12 million a year down to $8 million a year. The big guys are getting a lot of money, but the middle class is not. The reason for that is that they're holding the players back. Uh, you can go all the way back to Longoria with the, with the uh, uh, Tampa Bay uh, Rays. They held him back and, and played in Durham for a period of time so that they'd have the extra year on the other end to pay him well. nothing.
5: That's, so, that's and and all example. the clubs long, are doing Longo, that. They're Longo, not Longo taking care of the extension. middle class. No, that's, you're, that's, I, I'll get to that in a moment, but the Longoria is a horrible example. He he got to the big leagues faster than most players get to the big leagues out of college, as did David Price. He also signed a very lucrative extension at the time that was one of the best extent, extensions ever signed by a player with the minimal a service but time. But that, that was after had. they held him back. Well, they didn't hold him back. He was due to go to Durham anyways. It's not like he played a whole year in Durham and was ready. They didn't Chris Bryant him like the Cubs did. That's a much better example. Chris Bryant, where they they put him down for 11 days to gain the service. There's a good example. Mikel Franco with the Phillies, uh, he filed a grievance as well because the Phillies did the same thing to him. Evan Longoria signed a record setting deal for a player with no service time that actually paid for that entire first year and he got more than the major league minimum in year one, two and three. He got more than he would have got in arbitration. Then the Rays ripped up that contract and gave him a nice extension, which he's still playing off. The man's made about two hundred he's making twenty million a year right now, still working off the Rays contract. Well, I was just talking about
2: the I was just talking about the principle of holding him back. No, that, not, everybody that, that, thought spring training he was going to come up, and he did. He did no, come no, up. No, no, he until, was
5: never coming up. With, they were negotiating a deal. He had not. He had not. He had hadn't finished the year Triple A yet. It's not a good example, Evan Longoria. Uh, okay. They could have kept him down longer. Now, if you want to know what happened to the middle-class baseball players, not that the teams are manipulating service time, as people will tell you, and the agents have finally come out and figured it out. They knew it all along. It goes back to uh, many years ago when Bill Belichick took over the New New England Patriots. He also brought economic formulas with him um, because that's what his major in college is, is economics. And basically, he was way before sabermetrics in baseball, and basically he said to everybody in New England, when I negotiate a contract, you're not getting a lifetime achievement award and you're not getting rewarded for what you've done in the past. I'm going to pay you based on what we expect you to do in the future. Well, in baseball, teams that had to do that kind of manipulation of contracts, like the Rays and the Pirates and some other teams, would look at a player and say, look, we're not going to give you the, you know, the, the deal that you expect when you get the free agency. You see, it, was, it used to be in the past a gentleman's agreement. You played your first six years undervalued. When you hit the free agent market, somebody was going to give you a four or five year deal taking you into your 34, 35 year season. You're going to make a good amount of money and you're going to be happy and the system doesn't need to be tweaked. Well, when teams figured out and the, the first big market team to do this was LA Dodgers, when Andrew Friedman went there, he pulled uh, Stanley Ramirez, see, we're not going to give you a contract. We don't believe you're going to produce. You're not a shortstop anymore he let him go and even a rich team like the dodgers started to only give contracts and pay people what they thought they were going to produce that has turned into a lot of two-year and three-year deals meaning the free agent class has gone from you know x to y to z it's now saturated every year you've got the same player maybe 12 of them you can go get a left fielder. you can go get a center fielder you can go get a right fielder. you can go get a first baseman because these contracts are always coming up. Nobody at age 29 or 30, a college kid that gets to free agency, is landing a six-year deal. You're landing a two-year deal. If you're a good player, but not a great player, and you're in year four of arbitration, you'll get non-tendered. If you guys remember, Chris Carter, who led the National League in home runs, found himself out of a job, and no one signed him, simply because he was making too much money. And, you know, now his career came to an end, but... That happened to a lot of guys where it was just, okay, you know, we're not going to pay for this county statistic of home run. So basically the money that used to be there in a gentleman's agreement became a business of we're not going to give you a lifetime achievement award. We're not going to pay you for what you've done in the past. We're going to pay you based on your age and what we think you're going to produce. So now the players, my roundabout point is what the players need is to get paid earlier in their career and get the free agency early in their career especially the younger or the uh, college guys you absolutely get college age, you get out of college at 22 21 you spend two or three years even two or three years in the minors you're 25 you're productive your years 26 27 28 29 you hit free agency at 30 and teams look at you and say well your best years are behind you <laughs> you know <laughs> and you just got done playing your best years undervalued Roger, get your oar in the water,
3: it Yeah, I got a couple of things to say. Number one, uh, and I'm going to give you a several uh, comments and questions, Steve. Number one, is Rob Manfort one of the, the biggest problem, and he shouldn't be the commissioner? That's my, my question. My comments are a couple of things. I agree with you. I'll give you a perfect example in the Phillies case. Scott Kingrey. They paid him on the past, and then they ruined him. Okay, and who knows if he'll ever? And he's been injured. Who knows if he'll ever play another game? The other thing is the the, the drafting of uh, players, and it depends on the organization. Uh, you look at the number one draft picks that the Philadelphia Phillies have had, and none of them are any good from the last uh, five years. And the, that uh, is a problem. The other thing is I would like to see, see revenue sharing, and I think that when the NFL did it, it really turned it around. And it also, what it, in my opinion, it, what it does is it forces teams to think out of the box, especially in marketing. And you look at Jerry Jones and what he does and what he has done, and and the Eagles and some of the big teams, and yet there are other big teams, okay, that don't do squat, okay, as far as marketing goes. And they think, and and I'll tell you, the Falcons, in my opinion, from what I've seen, are one of those teams. And I've been here, you know, a number of years and know some of the people. But I think about uh, what the the, uh, Eagles and some of the other teams do Compared to what the Falcons do, and I think it's the same thing in baseball. I think we've got to have revenue sharing, but we also have to change uh, the uh, the minor leagues. You know, I am not for major leagues uh, controlling the minor leagues. I am not. I never will be. I mean, to an extent. I mean, affiliations and everything. But go ahead. Is Rob Manfort if they get rid of him, could we see the light at the end of the tunnel for the future of uh, uh, revenue sharing?
5: No, because Rob Ran- Rob Manford just works. He works for the owners. The commissioner, if you really wanted to solve the problem, make the commissioner independent, not hired by the owners, not a puppet for the owners. Let him or her uh, be an independent uh, person, and that we don't have in baseball. We have somebody that works. Well, for the Well, they didn't owners have it
3: except, in football either, Steve.
5: You know, no, uh, that's Pete Rose. Well, well in, in, in football, exactly, yeah. Yeah, football has a history of revenue sharing, by the way, uh, a much long history. I can, I can tell you right now, Bill Vex tried to organize radio money to be equally, equally shared among teams when he was the owner of the Indians. And he tried to organize and saying, you know, we need to pool all the radio money. Uh, the New York Yankees and Boston Braves told him to pound sand. You know, and that that came to an end right there. And this goes back to Bill Beck and revenue sharing among baseball teams for media rights, and was told no, because obviously if you have a if you have a nice big lucrative uh, tele, or, uh, contract of any kind, why would you want to share it? And for the better he learned his lesson. Day, he learned
2: it. his lesson in St. Louis and found out when he got to Cleveland. <laughs> I got to come up with some new ideas.
5: <laughs> and then he went to Chicago and came up with even more more ideas but right. you know, uh, uh I, i'm i gotta be honest and i you know I, I i usually don't hold back i'm not a rob mansford fan um it has m- more to do with uh the people he hires below him that uh like i do not like joe tory having anything to do with discipline in baseball um he's completely one-sided in his actions and they make no sense you know you've got uh Roldis chapman uh throwing at mikey brasau a couple years ago right at his head, gets a three-game suspension, and then they say, well, we can't do the the appeal this year. We'll do it next year, and then it gets knocked down to two. Same situation happened with Joe Kelly, who threw at somebody. He got a six-game of suspension and got it knocked down to five um, for throwing at somebody, and Joe Torre gave Chapman and reduced it to two. Uh, that's just an example. Joe Torre seems to not want to stop people from throwing at each other in baseball. Uh, you take a look at some of the other questionable things, like Javi Baez gets a little emotional in a game and gets suspended. Why? You know, I mean, why? Why is Rob Manfred allowing emotion to be taken out of games and allowing uh, allowing pitchers to still take a baseball and throw it in a hundred miles an hour a guy's head? Um, so uh, my problem with Rob Manfred is he just refuses to. Um, handle a few things uh, beneath him that kind of, that are kind of annoying me from the competitive side, you know, um, still have well, I, television
3: I agree blackouts. With you. Yeah, having yeah. Well, I, blackouts, I think that, I, I think that what needs to be done in the CBA is to have specifics. Uh, you know, if you, if you are uh, called for throwing at somebody, uh, then it, it, if it's a suspension, that's it, and you have the games, and there's no answer. It's agreed by both parties, because right now, even though you, you uh, in the NFL, they've got the big controversy uh, because of uh, COVID. Okay, where you know Aaron Rodgers gets a uh, slap on the wrist, and another guy for a much lesser uh, offense got thirty some thousand dollars,
5: and this is where so, I think
3: you have to have this in, in the CBA. Yeah.
5: Yeah, in the NFL, one guy lied to the NFL and one guy lied to the media. That's the big difference. One guy violated. Yeah. One guy was honest with the NFL about his status and then violated the league protocol. One guy really? lied about his status to the NFL, and that was that's a hefty fine. The three games alone. Anyways, uh, I'm not a Rob Manfred fan. I I don't like his. You know, no, I'm not either. Uh, you, you know, you know how this I, I I my stomach turned when I saw umpires. Basically frisking pitchers coming off the field, yeah. This year, yes. You know, and then and then the absurdity that if an umpire determines that there's something sticky on your person, you automatically get a ten game suspension, and there is no appeal. Right. You're done. There is no appeal. I mean, to me, when I'm watching baseball, gentlemen, I'm 51 years old, and I have no desire to see pitchers being frisked as they walk off the no. mound. To me, the, I like to watch a guy jog off the field with emotion and hop over the uh, first baseline and fist pump and high five his teammates coming down and have an umpire come down and frisk you and take your hat off and make you open your belt and stuff. I mean, and then you find out in the off season, I hate to be ripping Rob Manfred like this, but you found out that baseball was delivering different baseballs to different games, you know, and blaming the uh, supply chain problem with uh, on COVID and that, you know, no, nobody. Oh, that's a bunch of balls. The, It is a bunch Dave, of let's balls. get
2: let's get down on the field for just a minute because I, yeah, you know, thanks, administratively, thanks. I I think the game's all screwed up, and uh, we've talked about it now for what ten minutes, fifteen minutes, and uh, you know, from all sides, Roger feels it, you feel it, I feel it. Uh, it's a different game. It's it's uh, it needs a lot of help right now, and they better have the right people in place. But let's talk a little bit about two two specific players. Uh, Robbie Ray gets 150 million dollars from Seattle. Cy Young mm-hmm. Award winner, outstanding performer. Now, I, because you're a sad guy, mm-hmm. Scherzer gets 130 million dollars. Now he's 39 years old. He gets a he gets
3: yeah.
2: a he gets a, a, a yeah. he's getting what yeah. 40 40 million dollars a year to pitch yes, for sir. three years, and he's he's yeah. going to be 39. In the case of Ray, he's only 29. Why in the world would the Mets sign Scherzer rather than Ray? For uh, He's got 10 years on him plus less money.
5: Probably because if we talk about Robbie Ray from two years ago and three years ago, there's a big pitfall there that's probably equivalent to Max Scherzer's age catching up with him and him failing. Now, all that being said, you're dealing with Scott Forrest. But what you're looking with Max Scherzer, and, I, and I'll do this in a nice way since it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to compare a lefty and a righty. You're looking at what the Arizona Diamondbacks got out of Randy Johnson. Um, you're hoping that Scherzer can uh, continue to perform for at least two years of that deal and push the Mets over the top. Um, that's what the Mets are looking for. The, the third year of that deal and the 40000000 million, they'll eat that. If they can get to the promised land in the next two years with a healthy Max Scherzer making 32 starts hey, in today's baseball, if he makes 28 starts, uh, they'd be happy. Um, you know, uh, I, I think Robbie Ray's lack of control and his um, and his skid that he hit in 2019 and 2020 may have affected his future earnings more than uh, Max Scherzer's age. Does that make sense? Well, 150, yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, 115 against 130. I guess it, it makes sense. I just am not a great believer. Uh, first of all, the Mets—they talk about the Mets pitching staff. Well, you don't know whether the Gr- ground's going to pitch one game or whether he's going to pitch 20 games or 30 <laughs> games next year. I mean, every time he went yeah. out on the mound, he what yeah. p- he, he pitched? Maybe five games this year. I don't know the exact number, but something like that. You know, then yeah, uh, well, then well, the out. Yeah, the rest of their pitching staff is is very questionable, and you give this guy three hundred and thirty million dollars at thirty nine years of age, and then they, and then you talk about the great depth we have in pitching and how he's going to turn this team around. I, I don't see how that can happen.
5: Well, they did a little bit more than just sign Mac Scherzer to turn the team around. You know, they went out there and got the best center fielder in the on the market in Starlin Marte. They went out and got Mark Canna. They went out and got... He's
2: 31 uh, years old. I agree with you. Again, if you look okay, at his numbers, again. I agree with you. He is right now, over the last three years, has probably the premier center fielder defensively and offensively <laughs> in baseball. But he's also now 31 years old this year.
5: Yeah, but what you're doing is you're mixing in the veterans with guys like Pete Alonzo and Francisco Lindor and Jeff McNeil and J.D. Right. Davis. And uh, Lindor, but
2: show me a lot more than he showed me last year. I'll tell
5: you that. Well, as long as Lindor brings that glove with them to the park every day, I'm I, I think that's one of the best things that the Mets can ever have, um, any team could have. I mean, uh, the Phillies had Didi Gregorius up the middle. That that probably cost you ten, twelve games just having his bat in the lineup and his glove out there. You know, I think. Well, they got uh, five shortstops out there, and the Phillies haven't signed anybody yet. Isn't Bryce Stott coming up is that his name Stott or whatever yeah his that's name is? him yeah yeah they pretty yeah' mean,
2: the, I, uh,
5: they're pretty high on yeah. that kid but uh, yeah uh, he was he's terrific
3: uh, Steve. he really is, and that's what they're looking at and i I'll, I'll be honest with you i am not I am against uh teams signing uh kids right out of high school i mean i mean unless they're a special uh, I Now, the uh, Phillies just uh, signed the kid. They were talking about it today and yesterday. A, a young kid out of uh, Cuba who's uh, like, has it all, okay, uh, speed, arm, uh, for defense, offense, everything. And uh, only time will tell, but uh, they're going to have to work with him. But now that Dombrowski's in charge and got rid of some of the uh, – uh, <clears throat> bad developmental uh, people. Hopefully that'll uh, work. But yeah, it's uh, the kid that's the shortstop, Scott. He uh, he. They say he's the real deal.
5: Yeah. As long as the Phillies find some defense up the middle, uh, you know, to to, to help it, and, and some bullpen. But you know, the, the Mets. By the way, I mean, I, I, I do. I have to even say I don't even know why they're interviewing managers. Buck Walker's out there. I don't see what the what the reason is not to put. Have to put him in charge. You sign all these. Well, Scherzer, veterans, Scherzer also...
2: came out today with a statement that uh, Showalter is the man. I mean, he uh, he he gave a guy <laughs> uh, 130 million, and he says there's only one guy to hire, and that guy's Buck Showalter. Now you're I mean, in a real guys,
5: spot. I mean, you take the a look at Buck Show, Showalter's history. You know and. Uh, you know you, you, these veteran players probably played with him in all-star games. They have teammates that have played in his locker room. They probably all know the they probably all know the score of what a Buck the locker room is. There is no learning period if they hire Walker. The players are going to know what's expected of them at the World Series. Right. Uh, the day they get there, and. Uh, to me, it's a no-brainer. You know, you've got all these veterans that we just mentioned. guys that are at 30, 31. In the case of are 39. Um, you've got all these veterans that have been around the block a hundred times. It, it's time to give them, you know, a, a real driver in the dugout. To me, it's a no-brainer. So uh, there's some on-field stuff, and I hope that it works out uh, that Showalter is named manager and they uh, they get him in there. Well, he certainly got a lot of support in New York. Uh,
2: although they're they're still talking about five or six different uh, possibilities, uh, the new uh, the new GM, of course, has uh, you know allegiance to some of the the uh, uh, managers and people that he worked with as well, both in Los Angeles and with the Yankees. So it's going to be interesting. But there's a lot of uh, a lot of pressure coming that uh, you know they think Buck Showalter's the guy, just as you're saying.
3: Yeah,
5: you would hope Billy Epler isn't intimidated. No, I far,
6: think Billy... Oh,
2: well, okay. you, you you got Don Kelly, you got Buck Showalter, you got... Uh,
5: Bob Guerin.
2: Yeah, Bob Guerin. Who else do we have on that list today? Citaro,
5: Matt Catarro from down here in uh, uh, Tampa Bay, which I think he goes to Oakland, but, you know... Uh, I'm not sure who else is on that list. Um, Brad Brad Armist is
2: on the Brad Armas is on the list. Yeah,
5: Brad Ausmus. To me, it's yeah. a no-brainer. The only thing would be does Billy Epler um, is he does he, he doesn't want it to become Buck Showalter's team. He wants it to be his team. I know that seems petty, and it seem you know, and I'm I'm putting that on him. I'm not saying that he's like that, but to me, the only reason you want you wouldn't want to hire Buck Showalter is because he's too big of a personality, and everybody would consider him day one Buck Showalter's team and not Billy Epler's team. And
2: Bob Guerin's in there too, right?
5: Yes. All goes so. to
3: ego, Steve. Egos.
5: <laughs>
3: and the other I hate thing, to go like back that. to players.
5: You, you, know, you know what surprised me, guys, going back to uh, on the kind of administration stuff? You know, the Mets have had a hell of a time hiring people that didn't find themselves embroiled in controversy almost from the day they were hired, whether it was at the manager spot or whether it was the two GMs that they brought in. So they go out there and they do the search for the GM, and they get turned down by a lot of people. And then they hire Billy Epler. Now, listen, guys, I have no, no contact with Billy Epler. I don't know really who he is. All I know is he's, he's with the Angels. And while he's with the Angels, there's one lawsuit going on about a clubby who was selling sticky stuff to all the players in baseball, the pitchers. Okay, so that lawsuit is going on. Then there's another lawsuit going on from the clubhouse guy that was selling oxycodone and fentanyl to players that killed Tyler Skaggs. Now, did Billy Epler have anything to do with any of this? Probably not. The The point is it came under his watch with the angels so if i'm sitting there with the mets and i've had a disaster at gm and i've had a disaster at the managers i may have said i don't need stuff leaking out of documents in these court cases that are going to force us to make a turn from billy epler after two months and that's one thing i'm interested in seeing is as this tyler skaggs case moves forward with the parents going after the angels if epler gets dragged into it right i just wanted to throw that out there because to me, it's
3: well, very,
2: we're just about out of time. One
3: quick—that's uh, a great point, Steve. A very great good,
2: point. very good point. And have, uh, do you know anything about Suzuki, this, this young fellow that's going to be uh, eligible now to come? And the Yankees are, along with other clubs, not just the Yankees, talking about uh, solving their center field problems with Suzuki from Japan. Uh, have you any stats or any uh, comment on him?
5: No, the, the, the scouting report on him is that he's one of the few, few players from that region that can handle the fastball already. Most players that come over um, from the Asian, from the Asian markets have a difficulty um, catching up to the fastball. Yoshi Susugo, for instance, with the Rays, it took him a year and a half of big league hitting to, to, to be able to time up to the fastball. Conversely, when Shinsu, Chu left the big leagues where he had no problem with the fastball, and he went back to Korea, he couldn't catch up to the slower stuff. You know, he, he was, his timing was off, and it took him about a year to, about half a year to catch up. They say this guy here is like a twitchy hitter. You know, you guys know what that means, you know, when you, when a guy's twitchy, you know, he, he his bat just jumps through the strike zone, and that's what makes him special. You know, they say uh, he can hit the breaking ball, but he can also time up the fastball because he has such good twitch um, with with the bat. So, a lot of people are excited about him because they don't think he's going to have the pitfalls that a lot of the other players initially have that come over. Steve, you're the greatest. Steve, I'll Steve, tell before you. you we... go,
3: I just wanted to ask you, what did you think about the Braves uh, winning the World Series and Brian Sticker?
5: Well, I've always, real quick, I've always said winning the World Series takes a tremendous amount of good fortune. Um, it takes good fortune to stay healthy through the season, or get hot at the right time. And if anybody says that they saw Jorge Soler and Eddie Rosario uh, turning into what <laughs> they did in the postseason, uh, they're lying to you. Um, good, on, <laughs> right. good on those two guys. Good on those two guys. And it just goes to prove: you get into the postseason, it's all that matters. Theo Epstein said a few years ago, you know, your goal as a GM is to win 90 games and let the chips fall where they might. And that's it, the Braves proved it. You know, just get into the just get into the um, playoffs, and then then hope that luck goes your way and you can ride it all the way to a championship. And good job, uh, Brian Snicker for, Snicker for keeping the team together and focused through a very trying time and injuries. And great job by the front office to go out there and pick up the lottery tickets in Jorge Soler and Adam Duvall. He's you know he's leading the RBI league in RBI when they got him, but um, Eddie Rosario, Rich Rodriguez, he went out there and he picked up these guys um, as lottery tickets in hopes that they could string something together, and you know what, it worked. So, uh, granted, Victor it all worked great. out,
2: which makes it look better, but granted, they made the moves. They decided what they wanted to do. They did it, and they wound up winning. So you're
5: exactly right, Steve. If you don't buy a lottery ticket, you can't ever enjoy winning the lottery, right? That's right, right there.
2: Thanks a lot, Steve. I hope you'll join us Steve, a number of times. Down great we to
3: talk to you.
2: we can you know. keep talking about how this thing's going to move along. I agree with you. I think it's going to be this into spring training before they get this squared away. But thank you very hey, much. Just
5: get it just get it squared away properly so we can go back to enjoying baseball, guys. Take care.
2: I'm with you. Mike Simzak is ready to, to go Steve. now. We held him happy off. Holidays.
5: Thank you very yeah, much. Happy holidays Steve. to
2: you. We'll we'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, Steve. All right. Take care. Well, Stibbs, Zach, ready to go. And, uh, boy, i got so many things, so many questions for him tonight. It isn't even funny. Uh, first of all, we never really you're, – you're bailiwick of soccer, but we very seldom talk about soccer. But I want to talk about the union and the game that they played last Saturday night, lost to New York 2-1. to one. And how do you play a championship game when you don't have 11 players? They're at, they're not are not uh, able to play, and then also not only do you lose eleven players, but you lose your goaltender. Now, how do you do? How do you play a game like that in a championship when you don't? You lose eleven players, including your best goalie.
6: It's not only that you lost eleven players, including your best goalie. It was the fact that you lost eleven players, five starters. So. You lost your goalkeeper and five starters, which meant you lost half of your outfield plus your top two goalkeepers. Right. Matt Freeze would be number three. Um, It's a very, very interesting question as to what happened and how that happened on... And they played 88 uh, minutes. 88 minutes. Well... I was at the game on Sunday, um, only 2-1 on Sunday, and I thought that the union held out very well. Jim Curtin was right about the next man up. I thought that they did uh, as much as they could. In fact, they took the lead. You know, at one point it was one nothing. Then the NYCFC came back immediately and scored, and they scored a late one and, right. and just kind of overran the Philadelphia union. And it's really hard because, like you said, you know, this is a team that made it to the Eastern Conference Championship. And had they had a full roster, probably, were were the favorites? With a full roster, they were the favorites to go to MLS Cup at home in Philadelphia, in Chester. You know, the first time that that they have won two playoff games in the same season. Chess, uh, uh, Super Park was electric on Sunday, you know, full credit to all of the Union fans for coming out, and still supporting the team even when the news had broken on Thursday that this could be a thing. Now, Donna, I got a story to tell. Involves our good friend on the other end of the line, Roger Hedlick. Because I was sitting around on Saturday getting ready to go to a party, and about noon, guess who calls me? I'm listening. Roger. Roger. Roger, what did you tell me?
3: I'm here, guys. I'm also working, and I just got called. I'm going to be listening to you, but I'll uh, I'll be back in a, a few minutes. Hey, Mike, but we talked about this, Don. Mike and I did about I saw the union in the airport and uh on Wednesday <laughs> and uh I'll tell you what, a lot of things happened after that, so I'll be listening. I'll get back to you. Uh,
6: so ro- Roger call- Roger calls me on Sunday Saturday and says hey, you know, just exchange pleasantries. Hey Blake, um, guess what? I was thinking about you, I saw the union when I was coming up uh from Atlanta in the airport. And at first I don't think anything of it because I don't know what Roger saw, but I do know why would the Union have flown anywhere? They played all of their playoff games in talent Energy Stadium. But Steve, where uh, do
2: you get eleven? Ex- where do you get eleven extra players? I mean, how many players are on a team to begin with? And, and you lose eleven players, and your your leading goalkeeper the goal plus years. your second goalkeeper. Where do you get
6: players? There's thirty people on the roster. They had to sign three emergency players which was how they rounded out the full eighteen. Oh, okay. End. But I'm telling you what, Roger called up and said, and then I put two and two together about two hours later, and I'm like, I wonder what Roger actually saw when he was up there, because I think it might have been that these 11 players were on some sort of team thing, and they had flown out, and they never checked about how this was <laughs> going to affect COVID. Because when you look at the players who were involved in it, uh, these are not, Rookies, these are guys who've been around the league, including your captain. I can't believe that they would just like, oh, you know what, we're going to pick up and go down to Miami for a weekend and celebrate and party. (laughs) So uh, I think there is more to this story than we know. Some of it we may never find out as to why the union, like you said, Don, were without 11 key players, five starters, two goalkeepers, and four key reserves.
2: Doesn't make sense. It absolutely doesn't make sense. But,
6: well, it doesn't make sense at all. But, all right, let's not be the
2: dead drum. Let's go to football. The Washington yeah. football team, they have has turned run things run around. around. Last, second, last second win again on Sunday, and, and uh, Ron has somehow gotten this team that couldn't do anything into a real
6: streak. They now have the longest win streak in the NFL. They've won four consecutive games. They've pulled them back, themselves back to 500. They've firmly implanted themselves in the NFC playoff race. And right. with five division games left, they can really make a run not only at a playoff spot, but potentially a second consecutive NFC East. I mean, you know, all it takes is a couple of bad games from the Cowboys, especially this week when they're playing uh, the Washington football game team up here. Like, you know, I was going to say, I years. think
2: this is a pivotal week for them. I, I really do. I, they, they've been so hot, but it can, it can all go in the dumper if they, if they can't perform this coming Sunday. I think this is a very, this might be the biggest game of the year for them.
6: This probably is the biggest Washington Dallas game that we've had in a number of years. It was nice that uh, you know, Washington beat Dallas twice last year. But it was really like those late games against the Eagles that set them up well to win the uh, NFC East crown. Uh, this is the biggest game that they've had at FedEx Field uh, against Dallas in a long time. So it's going to be very interesting to see how they respond. Uh, Taylor Heineke has been, uh, he, hes you know, it started to slow down a little bit for him from the beginning of the year. You know, he was jumping, he was running for his life, he, he, you know, he was getting used to the speed of the NFL. As the season's worn down, it started to slow, slow down a little bit for him. He's being able to see the field, they're maximizing uh, his strengths, they're minimizing his weaknesses. Uh, right. His receivers have adapted a lot to him. If you watch that Logan Thomas catch for the touchdown, that's actually a really, really bad high throw by Taylor Heineke that Logan Thomas manages to just be athletic enough to go up, jump, get, come down, and score the touchdown with. Uh, they're starting to get, um, you know, there's. Curtis uh, Samuel might come back and finally play and be healthy for the first time all season, which would give them a, a weapon opposite uh Terry McLaurin. Now, Logan Thomas, the big tight end who's a big key player on their offense, he went on an IR for the second time this year, so he is done for the year. Uh, the defense, since they moved Landon Collins from a typical safety to what Ron calls the Buffalo nickel, has changed. Uh, it's also odd that two, probably their two most talented players, Emontez Sweat and Case Young go out and will be out for a while. Montez Sweat tested positive for COVID and he's not vaccinated, so he'll be out for at least 10 days. And Chase Young, of course, with the ACL tear, he'll be out for the remainder of the year. But, you know, it's weird that this defense defensive improvement has um, coincided with them both being down, but the rumor around here was that neither one of them were playing the scheme that Ron had set out so part of the reason why they were so bad at the beginning of the season was their two key defensive ends weren't doing what they were supposed to.
2: Right.
6: Uh, right.
2: And also, one other player, too, I, I know that uh, Fitzpatrick's only taken 12 snaps all season, uh, but uh, he's not even going to be able to uh, to come back. He's going to have a hip operation, and so he's on the shelf for the rest of the season. And Not that he was expected to be a gigantic starter, but he was a protection uh, at quarterback. So uh, another loss that they're not going to be able to t- to uh, recover on.
6: Yeah, so the, the uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick era in Washington will last all of maybe a quarter and a half uh, before he goes down. Uh, he was only on a one-year deal. I doubt right. like they'll bring him back next year. Uh, well, old, he's too old they, anyway. Uh, uh, yeah, and they haven't made... You know, at this point with... Carlin Heineke playing as well as he has, and having occupied the starting role for eleven games, filling in for Fitzpatrick for twelve. At this point, if you're not going to go out and get better, it doesn't make any sense to make a change from Heineke. I don't think there, you know, there aren't a lot of people who believe that he is the permanent future answer as quarterback, but. You know, keep him on the team. You can win games with him. He hasn't exactly been costing them games over the last couple of weeks, so you can right. game, win games with him. And if you're looking at, you know, tell Keenan Allen or Ryan Trattrick, well, go with the guy that's been winning games for you the whole entire season and keep going with that. If you're not going to bring in anybody better, at least just stick with what you you know, dance with the girl that brung you. Sure. Well they're
2: going in, uh, Cowboys are a four point choice. Uh going into the game and uh, the uh over under is 47-and-a-half, 40, I think. Forty seven but I don't have a paper in front of me, but I think it's forty seven and a half. And uh so even though the Cowboys are on the road, uh, you know, still, uh, Washington still and then on a five game winning streak, uh it, it, you give it three for the home field. So it's still a little bit of an edge to the Cowboys.
6: Yeah. If they were in Dallas, that would make them, I guess, a seven point. Right. Uh, I was listening to somebody who said, you know, maybe home field advantage has been a little bit overvalued the last couple of years. Certainly when it comes to the Washington football team, where for the better part of five years, uh, there's been no home field advantage. Uh, At best, it's been 50-50. A lot of times, it's been 70-30 to away fans. And so, you'll get... It'll be interesting to see how full the stadium is. And if the stadium, off of four back-to-back wins, Ron coming out and saying, like, we need everybody. This is Cowboys week. This is a big deal here in D.C. Have they sold
2: out any game this year?
6: The definition of sellout in this... Day and age, Don is interesting to me. Uh, they can tell you that they sold it out, but I'm only seeing on average, you know, maybe fifty fifty five thousand in the stands, uh, and that's well below sellout capacity. So they're saying that they sold them out, but uh, if they sold them out, a lot of people are showing up at the stadium dressed like seats. And I don't know why you would show up to a football game and dress like Steve. <laughs>
2: what, what is your prognostication for this game?
3: Um,
6: honestly, I I don't I still don't know what to make of the Washington football team. They've been winning games. They've beaten teams that they should, they definitely came out of the bye week and got a win against Tampa that I didn't expect them to to get. But since then, they've beaten a pretty average Seahawks team, and it took them until the last play of the game and probably a little bit beyond. Let's be honest, if it wasn't for an illegal formation on that onside kick on Monday night, the way that Russell Wilson was carving through them in the two-minute drill – Uh, he probably gotten the Seahawks within field goal range, and they may have had one. Um, I still haven't figured out what to make the Las Vegas Raiders. They look great one week and then abjectly horrible the next week. And Carolina, who they beat, who, again, I'm I'm not 100% sold on. I think this is outside of Tampa, who they got coming off of a bye week. This is the toughest test that they've had since this winning streak began. That said, we've seen the Cowboys be a dominant team like they were the first half of the season, but, you know, they haven't really been as solid uh, recently. I think it's actually, that's to say, I think it's actually going to be a close game. Uh, You said the over-under was 47?
2: Yeah. I I, I don't have the paper front, but that's the last I saw, I think, was forty. Forty-seven or forty-seven
6: and a half, something like that. I'm gonna take Cowboys win, but I'm gonna take Washington on the uh, the spread. I think it's gonna be a twenty-four twenty-one game, and I think uh, Dallas gets out of here. But okay. I think I definitely believe Washington holds their own.
2: Steve, I know I know we've been jumping around a lot. I don't know whether Rogers back with us or not yet. That's but not, he, I'm
0: not Steve. I'm Mike.
2: I'm sorry, Mike. What am I saying?
0: Steve was our last
2: guest. I'm sorry, Mike. But I, I know we've been jumping around a lot, but let, we started off with soccer, and we talked about the uh, what happened in, in the union uh, situation over the weekend. But Madrid's very much in the news right this weekend uh, as well. And uh, maybe you talk a little bit about, first of all, uh, oh, and also the fact that Las Vegas is now the heads-on choice to uh, be the team that or the city that they expand to. So let's start with it. With the expansion, and is Las Vegas in your mind? That gonna, is that going to be the one
6: uh, for MLS expansion? Yes, it makes a lot of sense for uh, MLS to expand to Las Vegas.
2: They're over uh, Phoenix. Supposedly they're over Phoenix and San Diego uh, for that 30 MLS spot.
6: That Phoenix, San Diego uh, uh, have been markets that they've been trying to get through, but. None of those have worked out. I actually think Vegas makes a lot of sense given the sort of transient nature of a lot of the fan base there, but also the ability to build a world-class soccer venue. I think that you would have a lot of people. I think that they would sell tickets. I think even if you don't have the typical hardcore fan support that you would, like, in terms of supporters clubs like the Sons of Ben or Baro Bravo down here in D.C., I think you could get a lot of fans to come who who would say, and it's a very international type of city. Uh, They played the CONCACAF Gold Cup Championship out in uh, the mausoleum in in Las Vegas, and it was a sellout, it was a great atmosphere. I think that they can have everything. And I think that would be a very interesting market. I Las Vegas is, to, come,
2: to me, Las Vegas is really uh, all of a sudden jumped up to be one of the leading places to be. I mean, look what the hockey club did. They got to the finals the first year. Of course, I give a lot of credit to Bettman for uh, establishing the fact that they had to give legitimate players so you didn't expand and, and put the team in a hole for 10 years. And uh, But now if uh, MLS goes there, Uh, The Raiders are out there. I mean, Vegas has all of a sudden in the last three or four years uh, become a sports capital.
6: Once they figured out how to handle the gambling aspects of that and Vegas dealing with, you know, how are we going to host games and make sure that every game that's played here is played on the up and up, which they've done once Gary Bettman took the initiative and said, we're going to put this out there. And, it wasn't only the fact that, you know, Don, that the, that the Knight, Golden Knights were so competitive. It was the spectacle that they put on every game. I remember watching the pre-games with them versus the Capitals and the Stanley Cup finals, and it was like a great Vegas show on prime time. It was amazing. Right. And every other league has to look and say, you know what? I want some of that. So I'm not at all surprised that – the Raiders moved there, and that MLS would look to move there. You know both MLS and NHL have been willing to put teams in markets that perhaps Major League Baseball, the NFL, and the NBA have been willing to overlook uh, Columbus being one of them. You know there 's no MLS team in Cincinnati or Cleveland; they chose to go in early and go into Columbus. And that's worked it, – it worked out well for them. I know that there was the talk of moving them, but it wasn't because of fan support. It was due to the stadium. They got that solved. If the team is still there, they're going to be there. You know, MLS was willing to put a team in Austin where nobody else is going. It makes sense that they would go um, into Las Vegas. And okay,
2: let's, no let's jump over. Let's, before, just, we run out of already, time. before we run out of time, let's jump overseas because uh, – uh, talk a little bit about uh, um, Madrid, because uh, right now they're top of the, ch- of the uh, Champions League. Maybe talk a little bit about them before we jump to another one.
6: Oh, well, uh, Real Madrid doing really what Real Madrid does. They're the most decorated team in all of Europe. Uh, they're top of their Champions League group. They're top of their league. Uh, it's probably more so to the fact that the other teams, uh, their crosstown rivals, in Atletico Madrid, and uh, if you want a really interesting story, take a look at Barcelona, who were, you know, this for so long, uh, the, the most celebrated team, Lionel Messi, goes there in financial straits, and today, for the first time uh, since I don't know when, uh, they fell out of the Champions League into the second-tier competition in the Europa League. So part of the reason why Real Madrid is doing so good is by the uh, is by default, everybody else around them is thinking. But, um, you know, they're back to doing what they do best, which is winning games and winning titles.
2: But Madrid also captured, uh, you know, a spot, the uh, champions. I mean, there's a lot of soccer going on right now. They, 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 they smashed the <laughs> we'll spot probably, right, uh, out of the, yeah. right out of the ground.
6: Well, um, if you want a good soccer story, look at this one. Um, Juventus, who are another very well-known, very well-decorated team, their offices were raided uh, about two weeks ago right? Uh, because of uh, accounting irregularities. Uh, about a decade ago, maybe 15 years now, they, this team was uh, found guilty of participating in match fixing. They lost a, two t- titles and were demoted to the second tier. So this is another one of those stories where Juventus, who are easily the most decorated team in all of Italy, are again in a situation where it seems like they may be running afoul of the wall. So that's one that I'm going to be keeping an eye on over the next couple of weeks.
2: One of the things we talked about at Great Lakes, uh, you know, uh, I guess maybe six, eight weeks ago uh, was the difficulty they had and, and the riot not rioting, but the storming of the field and so forth and so on. Has that all been ironed out now? Is everybody happy?
6: No, I mean, even today in the game that I was watching against uh, with Manchester United, there was a pitch, uh, the, the, you know, there was somebody who jumped over the stands. Um, it's a, you, I was talking to a friend of mine, and we were talking about this, I said that there is just a massively different stadium culture in Europe than there is in America. In Europe, there are people who will bring stuff into stadiums, who will do things going into stadiums that we just never would dream of doing in the United States. And I I don't know how to solve it. I've talked to a number of my friends from Europe who are also big soccer fans, and I said, y'all will do stuff that we just would never think to do Uh, with any sort of regularity over here. I don't know what the answer is. Um, I know that it's become an increasing problem, and they're trying to uh, sort it out. I don't know whether it's a matter of putting more security officials in the stadium, how they, um, how they admit people. I just know that it's a totally different cultural thing, and fans over there are willing to do things. Like I said, one of my best examples is if you go back about 20 years uh, you can find this on YouTube. There is a video from Italy, uh, one of the fan teams in Milan, throwing a Vespa from the upper to the fans below them. <laughs>
2: Unbelievable!
6: And there's just so many ways you can go with that, Don. Like, who thinks of bringing? Let's start with who thinks of bringing a Vespa into a stadium.
2: Don't ask me. You're the soccer, yeah. Raven. You're, 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 my, you're, my, you're my hero in soccer. You tell me.
6: I don't know. Like, you could never get away with something like that over here. And it's just, you know, we are so, we as American sports fans are so used to a different sort of stadium etiquette than is prevalent in Europe that some of these problems are just lost on us.
2: All right. Last question, real quick. We, uh, we talked about this time and time again. Uh, and we talked about what happened with the union. And uh, you have talked about their coach. And uh, what, what, what's going to happen with Jim? Is he, is, he, is he in solid ground now? Because you keep telling me he never wins the championship. He keeps getting there but doesn't win. How's he stand now real quick in about 30 seconds?
6: I said before the game. I said before the playoffs started. I thought that he needed to win at least one game. He won two. He got them to the title. They would. He got them to the championship. They would have been favorites. And then uh, this COVID thing happened. I don't know any with any if at all role that he may have played in this. But I feel like he's got to be on solid ground coming back next year. Okay. Whether or not they find as much success next year as they did this year, you know, I. See was saying to somebody it might have been the most Philly thing in the world for them to win a title with a team that wasn't as good as the one that came before it or wouldn't be as good as the one that came after it. But we'll never know, and we'll see. I think that he, he did enough this year to get him at least one more year.
3: Mike, thank you hey, very, Mike, very much. Hey, before you go, Don, let me, let me just ask Mike one i back. Let me ask <laughs> you anyway. was this question: was, was the Union a surprise team this year, in your opinion?
6: Uh, I think they were a surprise team insofar as how well they did in the CONCACAF Champions League, making it all the way to the semifinals and actually holding their own against a Club America. You know, if you go down to the Azteca and you only lose 2-0, that's pretty much an accomplishment on them. Uh, I think Jim's got a pretty good feel for this team, or Tanner's got a pretty good feel for this roster. And now the expectation is going to be they're not playing in the Champions League next year. I think the expectation is going to be uh, that they find some more success in the league because they're not going to have a lot of distractions. You know, I said I think he's on solid footing for one more year, but I definitely think, again, next year he's going to have to show up with something. Um, a, A trophy, a finals performance, something that he can say, like, I can continue to lead this team forward.
2: Mike, thank you very, very much. And uh, we'll look forward to thank next week. Job, and we'll see if there's as much shocker news next week as there is this week. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. Talk to you guys then. Take care. Bye. Have a great week. A resident PGA professional is on the line right now, down there in Baltimore. A lot of things to talk about in the Baltimore, Washington area, beside what we chatted with Mike about. And uh, one thing uh, – Doug Hamilton, uh, nice to see in the news tonight that uh, Tiger Woods is going to step back on the course. He's going to play uh, with his son. He also had a major press conference this week saying that he's not going to be able to... Hello. He's not going to play a full tour, and, but sure. he is going to play with his son. Uh, so a thought or two about Tiger Woods and uh, his uh, quietly coming back.
7: Yeah, it's it's incredibly encouraging. Um, obviously, we all know uh, what he endured in in terms of his um, his injury, and and you know they were uh, talking about the possibility of removal of his of his leg or his knee or his foot or you know a portion of his leg. Um, you know, so for him to get back into the game and and uh, have an opportunity to play with his son, there's there's nothing better in the world, and you know to even see Tiger on a limited basis on the PGA Tour. I mean, he's you know approaching his his. 50th year so um you know I, I think it's fabulous for the game um you know it's certainly in his blood and i know that he wants to continue to compete um as he sees fit so um it's a wonderful thing for the golfing the golfing world
2: doug i'm gonna we're gonna put you on hold for just a second mike schulte of the outback bowl was running late he just got uh, got in with frank a second ago We'll come back to you in just a moment, but uh, really interesting to me, the Outback Bowl, because Penn State's going to be there this year. First of all, Mike, congratulations on uh, the selection of teams, and I know you're very, very anxious
4: to get things going. Oh, thanks so much. I mean, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, this is we we got a really good matchup, I think, on the field and, and uh, in the stands, really. I, I think both these teams are... Really, really uh, excited about the opportunity to to play in the bowl game together. It's the first time they've ever played on the gridiron, so which uh, that, that that's going to be a unique proposition. But uh, they're both very excited about uh, being in the bowl, and, and I think it's going to be a really good matchup on the field. Mike, right, let's quickly go over. Uh, there are obviously
2: club seats available, regular seats available, uh, give us the rundown because a lot of people now that we're getting close, we talk about it a lot of times. And uh, we we talked about uh, Tommy Gilbert passing away this week. And that first question he always uh, asks you is to tell us what's available because that's his that's his belly worth. let's make money.
4: <laughs> well, well, we we do have tickets available still, but uh, they are going uh, very very fast. I mean, we we probably sold about five five thousand 5, tickets right after we announced. Uh, in short order, and, and we're continuing to sell. And um, But tickets are available through Ticketmaster. Uh, we do have some premium seats, club seats available uh, directly through the Outback Bowl when you get that information on our website. Uh, but uh, tickets to Ticketmaster. But, yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're, we're really looking forward to New Year's Day. And also New Year's Day and 12 o'clock.
2: Uh, it's, it's fluctuated a couple, a couple of weeks Different years when you went to the second, but it's
4: going to be New Year's
2: Day, 12 noon. Correct?
4: That's right. That's right. And uh, it's gonna we're going to lead off the, uh, uh, the 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 day of, of football. It's a great day of football with uh, you know with some of the other games out there, including the you know the the, uh, uh, the Fiesta Bowl with the, in the afternoon, as well as uh, the Rose Bowl and then the Sugar Bowl. Some really good games that day. It's going to be a really fun fun uh, uh january saturday of college football
2: mike uh lastly but not leastly uh another tremendous weekend of football upsets uh non-upsets uh, a lot of things happening and getting into the final four uh, i'll tell you it's been just a terrific college football season and it culminated this weekend really with some great games
4: yeah, I, I think it really did. I mean, you know, the, and, and some surprises, like you said. I mean, but you Bailer. know what? Every every week, every weekend, we we had surprises this year. I mean, it it really was. I mean, it was really really amazing uh, season. If you go back and look at it, um, you know, there was well, you know, there you know nobody nobody survived unscathed except except uh, Cincinnati, pretty much. And uh, you know, but there, there was so many uh, you know uh, twists and turns to the season uh, of, of teams losing or, or or having close games that they you didn't think would would be close. I mean, Alabama lost one game, but they also had about two or three other games that they they just barely got through, which is not typical of Alabama. And Then they come out and they do they play so well against Georgia, who, who was undefeated. So. You know, every, every weekend it just seemed that there were some surprises out there, and, um, and, and I think you're going to see that through the postseason. And I think you looked at the Alabama game the week before,
2: you shake your head and say, holy smokes, the way they got into that final game against Georgia was a miracle in itself. And then you had to say, Georgia's got the best defense in college football, according to all the experts, and they just blew them off the field. And,
4: uh, of course, they set well, up the final I, I, fours. I really would quick. argue about blowing them off the field. I don't know that they did that, but they certainly did test their, their the Georgia secondary like they hadn't been tested. But I'll tell you what, you know, Georgia, Georgia had, was in the red zone two times in the second half and didn't get any points out of it once before, because the guy, you know, dropped the ball when, or, or the ball came out when he hit the ground after catching right. the end zone. And then but they the had to it. the most points six. they gave up you, all you take year were, what, 17 in the game? Well, yeah, but they hadn't played a team at the caliber of Alabama, certainly. And and I that's think that's right. But I, I, my my point is that I I think that, that you if that if the playoff ends up if if it does, and we don't know that it will, but if it does end up in a rematch of Alabama and Georgia, I think it, you know it, it could be a completely different game.
2: So well, we'll as we
4: get closer and
2: closer to your game next week, uh, let's spend a little bit more time as we could put some miners in the fire as to what both clubs are going to bring to the to the uh, Outback Bowl, 12 o'clock noon on January number one. And congratulations on your selection. Look forward to the game. And, of course, we'll all be there. Frank has already gotten in touch with you. We'll be on hand. That sounds great. We'll, Mike, we'll look before forward to, to go, it. I want to
3: yeah. tell you the dogs are, are raring to go against the Tide in the
7: championship game.
4: <laughs> there you go. Well, there you go. There you go. Mom, you know, my 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 son's a Georgia fan, and I told him at the end of the game, I said, "Well, you know, I said the time to beat him is is the next time we play him, if it's in the national championship game." I said, "If you, if they would have won tonight and they still would have played him and gone to the national championship and then lost to him, then this game wouldn't mean anything." So if you if you if you really want to beat him, you better you want to beat him in the big game, not this one. Well, <laughs> they, they set it up so they get the two best teams in there. Of course, don't don't uh, underestimate what. Mr.
2: Harbaugh is doing out there in Michigan this year because he's got a hell of a defense as well, and uh, you know it's not going to be that e- not going to be that easy to eliminate him.
4: Well, absolutely, and I, I, you're exactly right. And, and you know, let's not let's not just discount Cincinnati either, of course, but because things can happen. But but certainly, uh, yeah, I, I think that that Orange Bowl game is going to be a, a real slobber knocker, as they say, right? As they used to say, and right. uh, and mm-hmm. this is when this is when you put your big boy pants on and go out and, and see who's who's really for real. So it's going to be a great few weeks of, of, of remaining postseason for college football, that's for sure. Mike Scholly, you're a great spokesman for the Outback Bowl and for the entire
2: operation down there. So thank you very much again. We'll talk to you next week. We'll have some uh, some big news about what's going to happen. Sounds great.
3: Take,
2: take care guys. Have a great week, Mike. Thanks, Mike. You too. All right, we get back to Doug Hamilton, our resident PGA pro. Uh club's right down in between Washington and Baltimore. We talk a little bit about uh Tiger Woods to start the show off. We also have to talk about uh, his uh favorite team which is the Ravens. And uh what a game uh, what a game yeah. on Monday night this week. Uh the Ravens had some choices to make. I don't know whether it's good or bad. What the people in Baltimore, Washington think about what actually happened in that game, Doug?
1: Yeah,
7: um, you know, I I, uh, I was contending with uh, the better part of the family who was interested in watching watching the uh, Washington football team. Uh, so I had I had uh, you know a, a computer set up at uh, at dinner, and I was trying to. You know, scan CBS Sports to figure out where I could find it because I mean, you know, the whole family is is a Washington-based, you know, um, you know, watching uh, last-second field goals to beat the Raiders. So that that was their thing, and and I had, you know, I was sitting over on the couch and and, and like nobody was near me, and I'm I'm you know yelling and screaming and cussing and hollering and you know, um, I mean it was it was a great football game, um, you know, from a choice standpoint. I mean. You know, for, for Lamar to lead them back down the field to try to get that game-tying score, as soon as he scored, I immediately said he's going to go for two, and, and Harbaugh held up two fingers. So um, I think the consensus was, you know, his his defense was pretty gassed, pretty banged up. Um, they, they had lost Marlon Humphrey, um, you know, to an injury. I, I don't think he wanted to go to overtime because I don't know that he wanted to, you know, delay the inevitable. Um You know, to go for two and win the game, I think, unfortunately, was the right call. Um, The play call was the right call, but the execution was just not quite there. Um, You know, Andrews was open, and he had a walk-in touchdown if he can secure that ball or if it's thrown in a little bit different spots. So, um, you know, unfortunately, they're, you know, going to have to go back to the laboratory. And I think the general consensus in Baltimore is – the Ravens have been winning football games, you know, with smoke and mirrors for the most part of the season, you know, um, 66-yard field goal, overtime win against, you know, Minnesota, barely beat the Bears, um, you know, kind of just at some point I think they're not going to have enough fingers to put in the holes to catch the water. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think they have mounting injuries. Uh, their secondary is incredibly depleted. Um you know, obviously we've chronicled the no-running-back scenario all season. Um, unless something, you know, seismically changes over the next, you know, week or two. I mean, their road to hoe coming down the, the stretch here is, you know, they've got Cleveland in Cleveland, Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Pittsburgh at home, Green Bay at home, and I don't really play the Rams. But, you know, I think they have to win two of those games. Uh, this week would be a big win if they could get it. Um, I think they have a chance to beat the Steelers um, at home. But outside of that, I mean, Green Bay might score 50 against them. The Rams might might score 50 against them. I, I don't know. Um, but I, I think they're in trouble. I can tell you that. Roger.
2: Oh, there we lose Roger's Roger making again. <laughs> yeah,
3: no, I'm here. Money. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I wanted—I wanted to say I, you know, I—I I didn't think it was the right move uh, by Harbaugh. Uh, I thought he should have gone for the tie and then gone for the win. But I got—I understand both sides. But you know, the, I was listening to Charlie White the other day, uh, my uh, Doug, and he is very skeptical. Uh, he's very skeptical of the Ravens now, yeah. and. Uh, What do
4: you think?
7: Yeah, that was, you know, probably a reiteration of of my point. I I believe that the Ravens are hanging in there, to say the least. Um, But, you know, I I, I think um, they they need to find some version of spark on offense to reignite the possibility of scoring more points. So I don't know whether that's, you know, taking a guy like Devin DuVernay, who's – you know, a pretty good receiver and, and getting him more involved in the running game like a Cordell Patterson scenario. Um, you know, unfortunately for them, I mean, Mark Andrews is a fabulous tight end, but they don't have a second, what you would call move tight end that allows them to take advantage of matchups in the slot. I mean, when when Lamar Jackson in 2019 won the MVP, um, he had the highest completion rate of any quarterback in the NFL to the slot receiver, which in that point was... Um, uh, the guy that they traded to the Falcons, um, I'm drawing a blank on his name, but, um, you know, Henry, I think. Was it Henry? I forget his name anyway. You know, they they, they have an issue in that slot position. They need, you know, second tight end. Um, you know, Devonta Freeman's not K, okay, but, I mean, he's averaging 3.7 yards a carry, which is, you know, Not that great. Middle of the road. Middle of the road. So, yeah, I mean, they're they're just – they're hanging in there. Um, I mean, you know, watching that game against Pittsburgh, I mean, yeah, you know, Lamar throws another interception down there in the red zone into the end zone. And, you know, that same story you live by, you know, was it a week beforehand when he threw the ball to Mark Andrews, you know, in the end zone. I I, I think that's the same one you die by. And, unfortunately, you love Lamar and then you hate him. You know, that's the way it goes. Well, they had the right play called. I mean, it was the the the,
2: uh, the reception was there if he had gotten them the ball, yeah. but it was just a uh,
7: just a foot or two fo- too far of to the too far of to the right, and he just couldn't reach it. Well, it was, but I think we, we go back and we talked about this. I mean, there have been times that Lamar looks good delivering the football from the pocket, um, but but by and large, I mean mechanically, he he struggles with um, throwing you know, passes that are consistent to to receivers. Um, You know, I mean, he's more of a slinger in terms of a sidearm or or three-quarter thrower that, um, aside from making wrong reads at points, you know, the the ball doesn't get delivered in a a timely or, you know, consistent fashion to some of these guys. And, you know, it costs you. I mean, he's thrown, you know, what's what's he thrown now, nine interceptions, I think, for the year? Maybe 11. I can't remember what it is. But Much, I, mean, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know the number I can it, It's uh, too many. It's too many. And in many cases, those interceptions occur in the red zone area uh, where, you know, if he doesn't throw that pick, you know, and they kick a field goal, that, that, that changes. So when you're in that area, you got to score some points. I haven't been doing that on a consistent basis. Well,
2: well, you could uh, ask the Buffalo Bills. I don't know if you watch Monday Night's Game against the Patriots yeah. or but You could ask them about the red zone because...
7: Right. They had
2: chances to, to knock the Patriots off and really take a big step forward, but they yeah. couldn't move the ball to the red zone, and they made fundamental mistakes. I mean, uh, illegal procedure twice when mm-hmm. they were down inside the 10-yard line, and you just
7: can't do that against you, – you can't do that against the Wigman. Well, and, and if you watch yeah. that football game, they, there were three passing attempts by the Patriots. So, I mean, that was – Basically, a game plan where they 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 lined up and said, "You know what? We are going to knock you off the football. We are going to right. run it on every down, and yeah. you need to stop us." And the Buffalo Bills couldn't do it. So I think if you sat in that film room uh, on Tuesday or or today or whatever day it was in Buffalo, you you had to be debilitated that you you squared off in a bully to bully fight and you got your you know hat handed to you. Um, you know, so that's that's got to hurt them. Roger, are you back with us?
3: Yeah, I'm right here. The uh, no, I agree with that. You know, and and what you uh, what we we're talking about uh, uh, earlier, I heard earlier about a uh, pick. Uh, you know, with Stevie K talking about what he did with economics. Well, I'll tell you what you talking, they, they were in uh, the, the uh, with the uh, they asked, they asked Joe Buck. I don't know if you saw that, fellas. They asked Joe Buck. What would Troy say about a game like this? He said he'd be going after the coach, basically. About, mm-hmm. you know, three right. well, I, I well, think the uh, most
2: surprising thing was, uh, Roger, I agree with you 100%, but I, I think the most amazing thing was that once Buffalo decided to open it up a little bit and throw the football, they were pretty successful. Even though it was against yeah. the wind in the fourth quarter, I, I, well, I and to, to me, I think if I were Buffalo, I and I certainly would have tried to do a little bit more when I had the wind with me. Then, uh, yeah. you know, I, I don't, I don't understand that concept of the game. I know what Belichick was doing. I just don't know what mm-hmm. Buffalo was doing.
3: Well, remember,
7: uh, Roger. That's that's why uh, that's why Corey Aikman uh transferred from the University of Oklahoma. He was an option quarterback on them.
3: Yeah, to UCLA, so, and I saw that
7: yeah, last sir. game in the Cotton Bowl, Doug. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, uh, that's you know a lot of good football games. You know, this Monday night you've got the uh, Rams Cardinals that that uh, set up to be a pretty good football game. It's going to be a great game. You know,
2: there's... I'll tell you, there's not know, very many works. good games. I, you know, Roger's back down in Atlanta, so he got a... Jet. But I'll tell you, what a terrible weekend it was for football around here. Mm. The Giants are dreadful. I Talk. mean, the Eagles won a game, but uh, the Jets, I mean, uh, <laughs> little sisters of the poor can beat the Jets. I mean, <laughs> they're, in, they're in last place at everything. point score differential, right. uh, everything. I mean, they are just yeah. terrible. And uh, the Eagles went in with a backup quarterback, and uh, what do you do? Roger completed first 11 out of 11 to start the game. Yeah.
3: Yeah, exactly. And uh, and and of course, what that did was, uh, you know, three touchdowns each team, and uh, and of course, Gardner Minshew, the man of the hour, and now you've got a a quarterback controversy. (laughs) Yeah. Angela,
1: Natale,
3: was great. Yeah, I know. I don't, Doug, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's, he's been on 30 years. At WIP. He said, "I like to create quarterback controversies." <laughs> 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 right. Well, I think a lot of a lot
2: of it's going to be a controversy on as to whether Hurst can play or not, whether he's physically right. able to play. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be a controversy of is he going to be the starting quarterback. I know this. Young man had a great exactly had a right. great game and a great weekend. But uh, until Hurst proves he can't
7: play, uh, mm-hmm. he's going to be the guy at, at the ch- in charge. Well, that's you know right to that to that point, Don. I mean, you know, you, you look at the the week to week and these injury reports. I mean, you know, I I swear I don't remember this many injuries. I mean, I know football is collision based and violent. And, you know, a lot of things are going on there. But you've got, you know, COVID as, an, as a problem still. People are either contracting uh, a variant of the COVID or they're, they're in close contact with somebody. They have to be, you know, test negative, they, whether they vaccinated, blah, blah, blah. You know, but you, you have all these scenarios. That, uh, somebody said today, I, I forget what it was, but the Ravens have $44 million worth of payroll that's on their injured reserve. Which is roughly 25 percent of their entire salary cap, and and you know there how how can you win with 44 million dollars of your payroll on injured reserve? That's crazy. Well, wow. as I said, you were talking, uh, you know,
2: Baltimore injuries. I mean, you're right up and down the up and down the league, uh, yeah. the injuries have really been devastating all year, and. Uh, and also, then you throw the COVIDs in on top of that. Uh, even Dallas right. with it was well, Dallas with the talent that they have. I mean, they lost their coach and a couple a couple of players last week. I mean, it's
7: it's you know, amazing talking, what's going uh, on. You were talking about the Giants. I mean, you know, you got uh, you know they're down to Jake Fromm and some guy they signed from who knows where. I mean, they could be they could be four deep in their quarterbacks, you know, because Glennon, I think, had a concussion, and, and the other guy's got a neck injury. So, I mean, you know, Jones. that's – that's yeah, Jones, that's crazy. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the, the the Ravens are on running back number four, five, and six. I mean, Jesus. Well,
2: Jones are still being very skeptical of that. I mean, they say it's a neck injury, a uh, – I, I don't know. Yeah. I I I saw the uh, they played a uh, number of plays uh, during the course of the week, showing where he was hit, and uh, mm-hmm. where he looks like he sustained the neck injury. But uh, it doesn't sound to me. Uh, and I read the post every day. It doesn't sound to me like uh, you know he's he's going to be really ready
7: for this week either. But right. you know that's the
3: thing. I mean, you have all these. Dreams. Your wife, I know, is a Georgia fan. And yes. uh, the fans were uh, up in arms, obviously after the Alabama game. But one point was made on a call, and I thought it was interesting. There's three NFL quarterbacks uh, from uh, Alabama, and uh, they want to know when Georgia, yeah, when Georgia can develop quarterback. But uh, from uh, from Georgia. Yeah and uh, sorrows, uh, we're at a, we're out of
2: time <laughs> frank frank's on the communique <laughs> well, and uh we'll we'll pick it all up again <laughs> next week doug thank you very much <laughs> yes, for sir. your kindness as we jumped in on you I take, take week, care stuff. fellas God,
3: God, God, my pleasure take care Be safe.
1: ladies and gentlemen these programs are brought to you each and every night of the week and grateful appreciation the men women of the united states armed forces and the men women police and fire services when you're out there and you see somebody in uniform Please acknowledge them. Uh, these are very tough times for everyone in uniform. <clears throat> so it really helps to get can notice, you know that you guys are there. These programs are dedicated to those who lost their lives in line duty: Deputy Robert Anthony Carroll, Patrolman Jeffrey Colcap, Sergeant John, <clears throat> John Spadinger, Patrolman De- David Curtis, the, uh, Patrolman Jeffrey Yazowitz, Deputy Rick, Rick D. E. Deputy Randy, uh, I'm sorry, Detective Randy Azak-Bell. Uh, Sergeant Tom Wilson, Charlotte County Sheriff's Department. <clears throat> Deputy Chief Mike Godwin, Philadelphia Fire Department. Lieutenant George Craig Lewis, Philadelphia Fire Department. Sergeant Thomas O'Connor, Philadelphia Police Department. Sergeant Chris Levy, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department. Patrolman and Officer Kristen Lakeland PD. Lieutenant Jerry Zerba, Newcastle County Police. Chairman Josh Meyer, uh, Nassau County Sheriff's Department. Captain Matt fellow Fire Department. Captain Chris Leach, Willington Fire Department. Lieutenant Art of Hope, Willington Fire Department. Lieutenant Barry Ficus, Willington Fire Department. <coughs> Good. Chief uh, Jimmy Ford, to Fire Department. Chief Al the Key Police Department. Trooper Chelsea Richards, the Fire Department. Trooper Joe Bullock, Florida highway patrol. My brothers and sisters, so are will be 10-7 at this point in time. Which sometime will be 10 ten at the table of the Lord. Until that time, may the road rise up to meet you and may the winds be always at your back. May the rides fall softly on your heels, and sunshine lightly on your face. Until we meet again, we may the good Lord keep you and your family always in the palm of his hands. Good night. God bless and have a great day.